survival was almost unspeakable. We are all evil in some form or another. I'm not guilty. The dead won't bother me. It's the living you gotta worry about. If I couldn't keep them there with me whole, I, at least I felt that I could keep uh, their skeletons. Hello, everyone. This is the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. I'm Vicky. And we're so glad you're here today. Taking yes. time from your busy schedule to listen to some crime and murder. Mmm. <laughs> yeah, we know you could all be outside doing things. but Right, it is the summer. <laughs> it is officially the summer, yes. But instead, you have us in your ear holes... And you're hoping for tales, sordid tales yes. of You will fill crime. those ear holes with sordid tales. <laughs> Ew. Ew. That sounds gross when you say it like that. Ew. Well, um, you said it first. <laughs> that's true. I did set that one up. Uh, so, mm-hmm. yes, we will do that. But first, <laughs> let's head over to the newsroom. So this article comes from CBS News and New York uh, State is once again in the news for what some might consider a radical new policing bill, but I just consider good policy. No. (laughs) (laughs) So there's actually been a bill introduced to stop police officers moving from jurisdiction to jurisdiction following disciplinary action. Nice. Yeah. I'm like, that sounds amazing. Kind of makes sense. Mm hmm. So police officers who were either fired or forced to resign because of disciplinary reasons would not be able to work as officers in other jurisdictions. Officers who resign while under investigation, while they are the subject of disciplinary action that could result in their termination, or while facing pending criminal charges resulting from their actions while on duty, would be unable to be hired in the state as a police officer. And what I also find interesting is that this would also apply to out-of-state officers transferring in to work in New York State. That's good. So, yeah, because I think... What we found is now when we're getting officers who have lengthy disciplinary records, that they are also the same officers that are kind of like moving from place to place and jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. So I think this is good. (laughs) To me, it sounds good. If they actually do it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is, yeah, I would say this has not been passed. It's just been introduced People are predicting it's likely to be passed because New York Mm -hmm. has actually been passing some pretty progressive criminal justice reforms and policing laws. They recently were one of the they were one of the first states to enact a chokehold law following the death of George Floyd. And Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility that this is is going to pass. I will be interested to see if Illinois follows suit you know us living in illinois hold my breath (laughs) no but they made incredible strides this year so like again it's possible that maybe next year something could come up but 
somebody's got to be the test state for some new laws like mm-hmm. this. So I'll be interested to see where this goes. There's part of me that feels like they're going to get a lot of pushback from the police unions, uh, mm-hmm, of course, definitely. as as they always do. But hopefully this is one of those things that will will move on. As will we to Netflix and Kill. <laughs> Beautiful segue. Thank you. This week we are talking, it's actually an HBO and Kill. We're going to be talking about Alan V. Farrow. Mm. You just now saw this? <laughs> no. But, okay. well, yes and no. I did just recently watch <laughs> it. I knew it was out there. It's something I had actually been looking forward to, but there was like this huge influx of like true crime content in the last like two Mm -hmm. months so i'm slowly crawling my way (laughs) through all of it so alan v farrow it's on hbo you can get it on hbo now it's a four-part series that looks at the sexual abuse allegations against woody allen from the early 90s it was alleged that woody allen had sexually abused his adopted daughter dylan farrow and strongly fueled the custody battle between allen and mia farrow along with him marrying Pharaoh's other adopted daughter, Sunyi Previn. There are some allegations from other news outlets claiming that the documentary is sort of like a puff piece that failed to include information that would exonerate Allen. Mm-hmm. Woody Allen and Sunyi Previn did release a statement the day that the documentary was released on HBO saying, quote, These documentarians had no interest in the truth. Instead, they spent years surreptitiously collaborating with the pharaohs and their enablers to put together a hatchet job riddled with falsehoods. Woody and Soon Yi were approached less than two months ago and given only a matter of days to respond. Of course, they declined to do so, as had been known for decades. These allegations are categorically false. Multiple agencies investigated them at the time and found that whatever Dylan Farrow may have been led to believe, absolutely no abuse had ever taken place. It is sadly unsurprising that the network to air this is HBO, which has a standing production deal and business relationship with Ronan Farrow. While this shoddy hit piece may gain attention it does not change the facts end quote that was their statement on the whole thing so interesting documentary for sure Mm -hmm. if you aren't familiar with this story i think it does give a lot of background and it does primarily focus on dylan farrow's recounting of her childhood and these events Mm -hmm. and mia farrow there is also um ronan Pharaoh is interviewed in the documentary and one of the other brothers, Fletcher, I think is his name. Yeah. Is also interviewed in the documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Thoughts? I <laughs> I don't think I necessarily agree with it being a puff piece because how could something about sexual assault be a puff piece ever? Right. <laughs> yeah. But I I found it interesting because it was it was focusing on the victim. Right. And if you know anything about anything, you know that Woody Allen is exceptionally egotistical <laughs> and narcissistic. Yes. So they didn't really talk too much about him in terms of anything but his relationship with Mia Farrow and the abuse. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they did 
ask for, you know, him to make a statement and he refused. And all of the statements that I've read before that he's made have just seemed like really contrived and very, um, I don't know, very written. <laughs> yeah. Very, very written. Yeah. But I also don't, I don't like Woody Allen. I think most of his movies are trash. That's my opinion. Yeah. Um, they're boring. They're real boring. And, uh, he's gross. Even yeah. if, even if what she said isn't true, even if she does misremembering or whatever, everything he's done since then in the spotlight, since he got into a relationship with Mia Farrow's adopted daughter is gross. Yeah. He is, um, and to me, like 35 years that, older yeah. than she is. I mm-hmm. think that proves to me he's, he has a problem. There's something amiss. There's something wrong. That's just, that's gross. I'm sorry. It's gross. I'm all for like an age gap, but that is nasty. Yeah. I will say in regards to like them being contacted for comments on the documentary, like I, I will preface this by saying we are not journalists, but I think it is a pretty normal practice for you to do the majority of your research and putting together of like whatever article or project or whatever you're working on and then reaching out for comment. Like it's not like mm-hmm. if you were in the middle of it, you're going to reach out for comment because a lot, I mean, there's times where it's like your research is really sensitive. Yeah. And so by reaching out for comment too early, you sort of tip off the people that you're investigating, which could then spiral into not being able to release your information. Right. Yeah. So I don't I don't think that's a weird thing to be contacted shortly before all of this is coming out mm-hmm. and only given a few days to like add a comment to something like I don't think that is an unusual practice. Right. I agree. So I kind of call bullshit on that, but it is a very interesting watch. It's only four episodes. I think it's worth watching and you can watch it and make your own mind up about it, right? But like yeah, there is definitely some really compelling information that's presented. Um, and I think also in the documentary is the first time that they play publicly the interview that Dylan did after the alleged abuse happened. She did it like this interview with a um, like an abuse clinic or something mm-hmm. while her mom was in the room when she was a child, like just a few days after the uh, alleged abuse had happened. So I think that was Mm -hmm. the first time that they had played it in this documentary also. Yeah. But worth checking out. It's on HBO, Alan V. Farrow. uh, If you got a free day on the weekend, just like pop it on. It's very, very dark. Be warned. Yeah, it is. It's not like a a fun crime documentary. It's a real (laughs) sad one. So Mm -hmm. be prepared. (laughs) This is that part of the show where we say concept may not be appropriate for all listeners. We will be talking about instances of murder and death and sexual abuse and fires and <laughs> the outdoors. <laughs> if you're afraid Lots of, of the outdoors, this might not be <laughs> the best <laughs> one. But Janelle, what are we talking about today? Well, it's the summer, Vicky, and a lot of people like to go on vacation in the summer. Check out a a park or two. So uh, we're going to just caution you with all of these tales of murder from national parks. Dun, dun, dun. You thought they were safe and just outdoorsy. Right? 
I like to go to national parks, but I don't hike the really intense trails for a reason. Now, I have this wonderful infographic up here, so you can kind of see and get an idea of this is the amount of deaths compared to the amount of park visits, and it's a death per capita in the U.S. national parks. And you can see there are some parks who have real big problems. Yes. And, I mean, there's there's some you would assume are, like, on the list for obvious reasons, like the Grand Canyon, right? That's mm-hmm. literally a canyon that people fall into, I feel like, all the time. <laughs> but even this. Yes. I'm going to give you a little bit of some facts here to start off. From 2007 to 2018, there were a total of 2,727 deaths at U.S. national park sites. While nearly 3,000 deaths is a very high number, but it's spread across a 12-year span. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt. Yeah. Additionally, to put it into perspective, there were 3.5 billion recreational visits to national parks during that time frame. So you have 2,000... 700 some deaths to 3.5 billion visits. Okay. So that equates to just under eight deaths per 10 million visitors uh, to park sites during that time frame. Yeah, that feels like like 0.001% of all of the, the visits. Yes. So as expected, the larger parks have more of the higher death rates. Only four parks saw more than 100 deaths during the study period, and that would be Lake Mead National Recreation Area with 201 deaths, Yosemite National Park with 133 deaths, the Grand Canyon with 131 deaths, and Natchez Trace Parkway with 131 deaths as well. Okay. Interesting. So the most common... Of these uh, deaths, so to speak, are drowning, suicide. Uh, they put murdered and missing together. Okay. <laughs> that was interesting. And that last one isn't really the largest group. To be perfectly honest, a lot of people drown at national parks. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people be drowning. It's all that water in those national parks. <laughs> so, I... We'll be covering the murders of Julie Williams and Lolly Winnen. This case is a little bit difficult because it involves two women who are LGBTQ, but they were not completely out yet to everybody. So the case was kind of used as um, media fodder for some LGBTQ organizations. And I want to concentrate on the facts of the case and the suspects and kind of leave the sensationalism surrounding the case out of it um, because this is still unsolved. Okay. Yeah. Julie, Julianne Williams was born in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Williams volunteered at a women's shelter, performed community service work in Columbia, and won the Minnesota State Doubles Tennis Championship all before finishing high school. Wow. She attended Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota to study geology. In 1993, Williams and five other students went to Greek Macedonia to study the relationship between ancient peoples and their landscape. After she finished that project, it was on to Italy to study the extinction of the dinosaurs. She eventually found her way to Vermont after this, and Williams loved the outdoors and took a lot of jobs as wilderness guide and at outdoor camps for kids. She is definitely way more on top of her shit than I am at her age. (laughs) And that just kind of tells you that she has a lot of experience being outdoors and oh, yeah. um, knows what she's doing. Oh, yeah. So 
Lolly Winans was a 26-year-old daughter of a wealthy family from Gross Point, Michigan. She dropped out of college and rejected her family's lifestyle. She lived in Vermont briefly and was engaged, but saw her life wasn't going the way she thought it should. So she moved to Maine and gave college another try. She moved six hours east to Unity College near Waterville, Maine, which is a 200-acre campus converted from a poultry farm to a college that specializes in environmental studies and wilderness-based outdoor recreation. So she also is very well-versed in how to be out in nature. (laughs) Okay. About a year later, the two would meet at Woods Women. Now, I want to kind of explain what Woods Women is because it's really interesting. It's not in existence anymore, but... Woods Women was an outdoor recreational camp for women that was ran from 1977 to 1989. It taught women survivalist skills and was also available as a nice getaway camp for just women. It was a place that fostered education, emotional and physical safety, and helped women meet their goals on how to be more close to nature. Okay. So, Lolly began an internship there in the summer, and Julie was attending. They shared a campsite with a small group, and that is where they began their relationship. The two were very private and kept to themselves mostly. The two would drive to visit one another on the weekends, and the following summer they planned to spend the whole time traveling together and hiking in the U.S. They rented a cabin briefly in Vermont and then decided to kick off the summer with a trip to Shenandoah National Park in Virginia. The trip she planned with Lolly in Shenandoah was, in fact, a celebration of a new job that she was to start at Lake Champlain, Vermont, on June 1st, 1996. Okay. Now, a little info about Shenandoah Park is um, it's really close to the Appalachian Trail, and it's really close to the Blue Ridge Mountain Parkway. There's a lot of articles about murder on the Appalachian Trail. Damn. So this is kind of um, (laughs) not a super great place to be. Yeah. The hiking trail is very famous for murders. And my grandmother actually lived along the Blue Ridge Mountain Parkway. And I never really felt unsafe there. But I also wasn't hiking in the woods by myself. (laughs) Right. Yeah. We hiked the trail a little bit when I was younger. And there was, I mean, there were quite a few murderers during the time that I was there. Oh, my gosh. In the 90s. So, (laughs) Janelle, you could have been murdered. I could have been murdered. Um, We will discuss this a little bit more uh, later with possible connections to other cases. Okay. So, with the two went Winnin's dog, Taj, who was a golden retriever. And they went off onto their trip for just hanging out in the woods, those two and their dog. Sounds magical and wonderful. Oh, Unless your dog is my dog, who is an asshole. (laughs) He's just being an asshole in the background. I bet he can hear you. Oh. oh, he can hear me. He knows. He knows he's being naughty. <laughs> anyway. As he scampers off. I can hear the scampering right? in the... <laughs> he is just doing circles left and right. It's very annoying. Uh, anyway. So the two women entered the National Park, stopping at Pinnacle's Overlook on Skyline Drive. They then set out to go along White Oak Canyon Trail. And most of this was tracked by photos that they had taken on their camera and interactions that they had with other campers and rangers. There were a couple of days of rain, which literally put a damper on their hiking. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, the two hitched a ride with a park ranger um, shortly after and then renewed their camping permit and then set out again to explore some other trails. Okay. This time they climbed Hawks Bill, which is the park's highest peak, um, where there's an observation deck that offers a really big uh, view of the mountains. They could also see the towns of Stanley and Bishop Top and Stony. So it's like you could, it's a big, it's a 
big fucking lookout. <laughs> okay, that sounds pretty cool. They made camp half a mile off of Skyline Drive, which is the major the major drag through for the uh, park. Okay. And it was just off the Appalachian Trail. So it's actually very busy over there. And that's kind of where their trip ended. On May 31st, 1996, Thomas Williams, Julie's father, reported his daughter missing. Park rangers started a search and located Julie and Lolly's car just north of Skyland Lodge. The rangers came across Taj, the golden retriever, wandering through the park unleashed. Okay. On June 1st, 1996, rangers found the bodies of Julie and Lolly at their campsite on Bridal Trail, which was a part of a horse trail system that ran from Big Meadow to Skyland. Lolly was found inside the tent. She and Julie had been gagged and their hands had been bound behind their backs with duct tape. And then they had their throats slashed. Oh my gosh. One of them had their ankles bound, but one of them didn't. Uh, Both of them were partially undressed, but neither women had signs of sexual assault. Julie's body, along with her sleeping bag and sleeping pad, were approximately 30 to 40 feet away down a little embankment from the campsite. Their camp was just far enough off the trail that that they weren't seen or heard. So they immediately started searching the area, and the camera that they left behind had a lot of photos on it that helped them get a timeline of where they had been that weekend and approximately when they were last seen. Now, the difficult thing about the national parks is the jurisdiction issue. So, you know, who's going to take over the investigation of the case? Shenandoah National Park is a federal jurisdiction, which means that only the federal government has law enforcement authority over it. The investigation did include special agents that are part of the National Park Service in conjunction with the FBI. Uh, Virginia State Police's crime scene unit processed the crime scene along with the FBI, but because the state lacked some special equipment, they had to call the FBI in to kind of finish it off. Yeah. The investigators followed up on an estimated 15,000 leads, and for over a year, nothing happened until one day in July of 1997 when there was a creeper in Shenandoah National Park. A fucking creeper. Always with the creepers. Now, Daryl David Rice was this particular creeper. So, Yvonne Malbasha was pedaling a mountainous road when she was forced off of the road and off of her bike by a man driving a truck. He screamed sexual profanities at her as he stepped from his vehicle and tried to force her inside of it. Oh my god. Malbasha was able to fight him off and took cover behind a tree as the man re-entered his truck and tried numerous times to run her over. What the fuck? He eventually gave up and sped away, and rangers apprehended him as he was leaving the park. Oh my god. When they searched his vehicle, they found hand and leg restraints inside. And Rice had a history of being aggressive towards women. One might call him an incel nowadays because of the things that he's saying. Oh god, yeah. (laughs) Okay. And when asked, former co-workers attested that he would scream profanities at women often in the office. I would be losing my shit if this happened to me. Like, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'm just, like, enjoying a bike ride. And then somebody's literally trying to to run me over with their car. Like, yeah. what? Oh, my God. So, in 1998, Daryl David Rice pled guilty to the attempted abduction of Malbasha. He was sentenced to 135 months in prison. Interviews after his arrest led prosecutors to believe that Rice may have been involved with the Julie and Lolly murder. So based upon circumstantial evidence, Rice was indicted on April 10th, 2001. 
Rice was charged with four counts of capital murder, two of which alleged he selected his victims because of their sexual orientation. Because Rice was charged with a hate crime, his indictment invoked a federal sentencing enhancement, which means if convicted, Rice could receive the death penalty. Okay. Now, Rice had stated on several occasions that he enjoys assaulting women because they are, and this is in his words, more vulnerable than men. Additionally, prosecutors stated that Rice said that women deserved to die because they were gay. So he said that in an interview after they had charged him that they deserved to die because they were gay. Oh, my God. Which, I mean, to me, that sounds like a guilty statement. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the prosecutor spent years building the case against Rice. They still lacked that forensic evidence to tie him to the scene. Then in 2003, magically, a hair that had been found at the crime scene was tested. And the DNA results indicated that they did not match Rice or the victims. Where was this hair when they were, like, investigating that whole time? So, if you remember, this is the 90s. So oh, my God. DNA. The 90s. <laughs> DNA was just beginning, and not many places had the capacity to do it yet. True. And Good because point. there were some issues with jurisdictional stuff, they took the evidence, but it took a very long time for them to test it. And this was a piece of hair found on the duct tape. Okay. Rice also faced suspicion in the deaths of another person, Alicia Showalter Reynolds, but he was never charged in that case either. She was another woman abducted and murdered on the road while she was on her way from Baltimore to Charlottesville. So there's a lot of connection here. After his release from prison, Rice was briefly seen in 2014, but he has not been seen since. Okay. Okay, Which weird. Is creepy. Weird. Now, another man, Richard Ivonitz, had been considered a suspect in the Shenandoah National Park's murders as well. Ivonitz was a serial killer, kidnapper, and rapist responsible for three deaths of little girls in Spotsylvania County, Virginia. That is a lot to say. It's a weird town name. It is. He committed an abduction and rape of a 15-year-old girl. Um, in South Carolina as well. He died by suicide in 2002 being after he was being chased by cops um, because the police had connected him to three murders. He like was actively being chased, lost them in the woods, and then killed himself. Oh, my God. So if that's not a guilty omission, I don't know what is. However, forensic evidence has not yet confirmed that Ivanovitz is, is potentially having any involvement in the case. I don't know if they have tested DNA for it or not. They haven't mentioned him since. One would think, you know, if he was a potential suspect, they would have had some way of testing the DNA. Right. <laughs> now, it is believed by many that this crime is a hate crime and that their murders were planned to some degree. Um, there are some news outlets that really sensationalized the relationship that they had and just treated their the coverage of this case in a really gross manner. There were also some LGBTQ groups that were really prominently focusing on this. And the difficulty that I have with that is that these women were not fully out to their families. Yeah. They were out to a few of their friends. Mm-hmm. And that was about it. And this was still during a time period where being gay is a little bit taboo for women. Maybe not so much for men, but definitely for women. Yeah. So nowadays, if somebody wasn't out, I feel like that would have been treated much differently. Yeah. But because they were really trying to 
push the fact that this is a hate crime. I can understand why they were pushing so hard, but I mean, out of the respect for the individuals, I would say like, if they didn't come out to their family, like, I don't know, maybe not, maybe not push on it so hard. Right. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing. It's a catch 22. Like you want to be respectful full of the victims, but you also want to make it clear that like, this is a hate crime. They were mm-hmm. definitely killed because they were gay. I mean, I, yeah. I fully believe that the way that they were treated and the history of people being assaulted on that trail and the history of people saying things like that in that area. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There are uh, other cases of lesbian couples being harassed and murdered on the trails near Shenandoah, so it seems like it could be the work of a serial killer to me. These are crimes that happened in the span of about 15 years. There was another couple of women who were murdered as well, yeah. uh, a little bit further south, I believe. So you lean more towards the serial killer theory? I definitely think so, yeah. Okay. To this day, the case remains open with no new leads, and this case technically hasn't gone cold because it is active and open for investigation, and they are doing repeated follow-ups on it. So, if you're out there, listeners, anyone with information regarding the murder of Julianne Julie Williams and Laura Lally Winnens is asked to contact the Richmond FBI field office at 804-261-1044 or tips fbi.gov Okay, so I mean, national parks are fun. <laughs> it's hard to make they this are. really light because National parks are, like, really beautiful places if you go to. There's just some horrible shit that occasionally happens. Yeah. We're going to switch gears a little bit to go over to Yosemite National Park. All the way across country. Opposite (laughs) side of the country in Mm -hmm. California. Our story centers around 42-year-old Carol Sund, her daughter, 15-year-old Julie, and 16-year-old Sylvina Peloso. Now, Carol had a real estate business with her husband, Jans, in Stockton, California. And Sylvina had been staying with the sons as a foreign exchange student from Argentina. So the three women left to go on vacation to the area around Yosemite National Park on February 12th, 1999. After landing in San Francisco, the trio rented a red Pontiac Grand Prix and traveled to the University of Pacific, where Julie participated in a cheerleading competition before moving on to Cedar Lodge in El Portal, a which is like this hotel located on Yosemite's western slope. I googled images of this place. Not like it's not like super fancy, but it's just like a nice little hotel. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. No, no. It's exactly what you would imagine from, like, a woodsy, like, lodge-type place. <laughs> they planned to spend a few days hiking and relaxing. And on February 15th, Carol, Julie, and Sylvina decided to head out on a hike for the day. And then they returned to the lodge where they had rented some videos from the front desk and then retired to their room to relax. The next morning went pretty much as usual for the hotel staff. Checkout had been prearranged for the group of women and the hotel key was left on the desk in the room. 
when the room was cleaned, the staff didn't really like notice anything that would raise any suspicions. It looked like a the average room after somebody stays, you know, a little dirty, mm-hmm. but not like, you know, there's not like shit tipped over and mm-hmm. everything in disarray. The group was scheduled to meet Jens at the San Francisco airport where he was stopping by on his way to Arizona and like meeting the rest of the family. And then they were all traveling to Arizona together while Jens was going to be busy with business meetings. Carol, Julie and Sylvina were set to tour the Grand Canyon. However, when Jens went to meet them at the airport, the women were a no show. And while this was like kind of unusual, Jens assumed that rather than waiting for him to get there, they had just flown on ahead to Arizona. And so he decided to go to Arizona himself to meet them. The next day, after still not being able to get a hold of the women, he decided to call the police. They checked with the rental car company who confirmed that the red 99 Grand Prix that they had rented had not been returned to the rental car agency and that there was no arrangements to that were made to extend the rental. Carol, Julie, and Sylvina had last been seen picking up the videos from the front desk at the lodge. So a search begins immediately, and early suspicions were that the group had gotten lost on a hiking trail somewhere in the park. Mm-hmm. As you might expect, based on Janelle's earlier statistics uh, <laughs> and the fact that it's like literally all hiking in these places. I feel like when something like this happens, they're a little bit quicker to act than they would be in like a regular area because it's so treacherous in some places. Mm -hmm. For sure. So they started searching, but like the hopes of finding them were slowly becoming less and less because the search started stretching on for weeks and weeks. Now, not only were they looking for the missing women, but they were searching for the missing car and using helicopters, skis and regular foot patrol, police, Yosemite Park Rangers, family and volunteers searched the area for four weeks, not turning up anything. They would finally get a little break when a wallet belonging to Carol Sund showed up in Modesto, which is approximately two hours away. It's like two hours west of where all of the searching around Yosemite was happening. Mm -hmm. Now, by this point, the FBI were involved and they began treating the case as a murder rather than a missing persons. Mm. The investigation at that point moved from Yosemite to Modesto, where authorities upped their search efforts. Jens decided to offer a reward of $250,000 for information leading to the return of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, later increasing that reward to $300,000. And Carol's parents actually went on to Good Morning America to plead for any information about the disappearance of their family. And it was like, At this point, the family was just desperate for any leads to where they could possibly be. Any hope of returning the women alive was crushed when on March 18th, about a month after their disappearance, a hiker stumbled upon the torched Pontiac Grand Prix hidden in Stanislaus in the Stanislaus Forest region. The California Highway Patrol went to check it out and they confirmed that the plates belonged to the missing rental vehicle. 
So when the FBI arrived, they began searching the vehicle where in the trunk they found the charred remains of Carol's son and Sylvina Peloso, and they were identified through their dental records. But Julie's son was still missing. So they continued searching and searching. And then on six days later, on March 25th, authorities found the body of Julie Sund near Lake Pedro. Her throat had been cut and her body was badly decomposed. Was she charred? She was not. No. The other two were. Yes. But the car wasn't on fire. No, the car was no. They were they were in the trunk of the car that had been set on fire. So the car was okay. completely. I, I missed that part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The car was completely burned out, and there's some pictures gotcha, gotcha. of. For a second, I was like, "Wait, their bodies were burned, but the car wasn't burned." Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. No. 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 I think the they were in the trunk when the car was set on fire. Like I don't gotcha. think they were burned separately or anything. Mm-hmm. So the FBI started rounding up all of these suspects. And by rounding up, I mean they were just like... like Every person. <laughs> every person, yeah. Most of these people were drug users or dealers, sex offenders, um, ex-cons with violent backgrounds. All of them came from the... It was like this surrounding area of 75 miles around the Modesto area. They initially zeroed in on two suspects, Eugene Dykes and Michael Larwick, both of which were meth users from Northern California. But then, as this investigation seemed to be ticking on, like the body of another woman was found on July 22nd, which Mm. sort of ruled out both Dykes and Larwick. So 26-year-old Joey Ruth Armstrong was found in a drainage ditch. Her head was missing when they found her. After a little more searching, they did find her head about 27 feet away from her body. Now, Joey worked for the Yosemite Institute as a nature educator. And Mm -hmm. further investigation determined she was likely killed the evening of July 21st, that she had been seen at work during the day, but failed to show up for a visit with a friend who then called the park. And police also found her car still parked in front of the employee cabins, like packed up for the trip. So she hadn't even left Mm -hmm. to go yet. Mm. Further investigation into Joey's death led authorities to someone that longtime listeners of the show will probably know. Mm. (laughs) Oh, boy. His name is Carrie Stainer. Mm. Now, on episode 54... Titled <laughs> Pacifier in the Playpen, we talked about pedophile rings and uh-huh. the case of Steven Stainer, which is somebody that Janelle covered. Yes. I kind of love being able to go back to these like <laughs> things for a long time. We've been like, well, we'll cover this eventually. This is one of those. Yeah. yeah. So you also, during that episode, briefly mm-hmm. mentioned his older brother, Carrie Stainer, who was eventually like (laughs) in some trouble of his own yeah this is that trouble yeah okay so stainer if you haven't listened to that episode you should it's very fun well Mm -hmm. about as fun as the title can be yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay so stainer had been interviewed in the initial investigation into the deaths of carol julie and sylvina And at the time, he was actually working as a handyman at the Cedar Lodge. And so other than his employment, there really wasn't 
any evidence that connected him to the deaths. And his interview really was just kind of this like routine part of the investigation. They interview all of the employees. But this time there was a witness who described a blue and white SUV that was seen around the time of Joey's murder. So they found Stainer at apparently what was like one of his old haunts, Laguna del Sol nudist colony. Casual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) And brought him in for another round of questioning. At that point, they released him telling him not to leave the area. And they also searched the SUV, finding a backpack that they confiscated. And then they searched his apartment, finding additional evidence linking him to the crime. So when police finally brought him into custody again, Stainer confessed to not only Joey's murder, but the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, something that police were like not counting on at all. During my research, it made it seem like at this point, they might not have actually connected the two murders. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't really ready for this second confession to three other murders. Who is ready for that, though? I know. It's like, (laughs) surprise! I also murdered all of these other people. Oh, you're not talking about that one? Just forget I said (laughs) anything. My bad. (laughs) So he was officially arrested and brought before the courts in Sacramento. That same day, uh, Stainer decided to do a jailhouse interview where... So what I can only assume is the regret of his future lawyers, he confessed to everything to a reporter from KNTV. So I tried to find the original report from this like KNTV interview, but instead I found an article about the reporting from South Coast Today, who also reported it from the Associated Press. So I found a report about a report about a report. It's about <laughs> as close as I could get. A report inception. Yes. So here's what he had to say, quote, I am guilty. I did murder Carol's son, Julie's son, Sylvina Peloso, and Joey Armstrong, end quote. He blamed the voices in his head for driving him to murder and that he acted alone, which is something that a lot of people have questioned. They were like moving all of these bodies and and manipulating all of the stuff the way that he did. Some people believe mm-hmm. that there was a second person involved. Yeah. But the FBI is pretty confident that there wasn't. So so he said that he acted alone. He also pointed out that he made a point to point out that none of the women were sexually abused or tortured in any way. Mm-hmm. For the record, Stainer had, in fact, sexually assaulted both Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso before murdering them. So. So cool, bro. It's one of those things in confessions i feel like that murderers for some reason are just like make a point to point out the thing they don't want to be even if that's what happened like i think there was there's another interview with another serial killer that i can't think of the name of where he keeps making a point to be like i'm not gay i'm not gay when there was all of this like he was sexually assaulted assaulting and murdering and raping i think gay men Mm-hmm. But like the f- he did not want to be known as that. So I think it's a very similar thing here where he's like, I didn't sexually assault these women. That's not what this was, even though that's pretty clearly what this was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So in describing the crimes, he said that he, quote, strangled Mrs. Sund and Miss Peloso in their room at the Cedar Lodge where he also lived He then took Julie to a point overlooking Don Pedro Reservoir, where he killed her early the next morning and hid the body in the thick underbrush. 
He said he left wet towels in the motel room to make it seem as if they had taken a morning shower and left without incident. He took the car with Carol and Julie's bodies in the trunk to Long Barn, left the car there for two days before returning to burn it to confuse police. He then dropped Carol's wallet on a random street in Modesto. This whole time, <laughs> yeah, he he was like trying really hard to fly under the radar. So he drops this wallet at random street in Modesto. Stainer had continued to work at the Cedar Lodge to avoid arousing suspicion. So rather than fleeing, he just... Like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> he concluded the interview by saying to the victim's families, this is, and I think this is another one of these moments that's like truly enlightening to to how he thinks and mm-hmm. some of the like sociopathy that he has, right? He says, quote, I am sorry their loved ones were where they were when they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I did. Mm-hmm. So that's one of these statements that's very much like, I'm sorry that they were in my way. Not like, I'm sorry mm-hmm. for what I did. Which is one of these things, again, that's like really telling about their psyche, <laughs> where it's yeah. not that they did something wrong. It's that the victims were in the wrong place and it's their fault. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Victim blame, yeah. Yeah, which is seriously fucked up. So in 2001, Stainer pled guilty to the murder of Joey Armstrong and received a life sentence. In the 2002 trial for the murders of Carol, Julie, and Sylvina, he tried the insanity defense, but like the jury was not having that. So instead, he decided to change his plea to guilty and received a death sentence. And currently, he's incarcerated on San Quentin's death row. And that is the story of the Yosemite Park murders. Yikes. Makes you never want to go on a trail no. ever again. <laughs> no. And they were, it wasn't even like when they were hiking the trail. Mm-hmm. It was when they were at their hotel. In some of the research that I did, he talks about how he gained entry to their room by saying he needed to fix a leak on the pipe. Like, what do you do with that? I mean, just never let anybody come do work in your room from the hotel. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know. But even if something did go wrong, like the amount of area in all of these national parks that they have to search is like massive. Yeah. I, I mean, like, what, like, how do you even, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. So before you decide to go on an incredibly difficult hiking trail in one of our lovely national parks, maybe you should listen to this podcast. Murder. Do you have anything to say on why you should not die according to the law? Mysteries. A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducket, Marshall, and the occasional have disappeared from the island. Join us at the Hidden Staircase podcast, where every two weeks I will bring you stories and cases you've probably never heard. You can find us on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to lock your doors. And hold tight to your flashlight. All right, Janelle. That has been our episode. Yes. Sure has. It's been a, re- a real one. <laughs> Should, I guess we're talking about summer fun, but... 
like some are not so fun. <laughs> some are not so fun. <laughs> Tales yeah. of um warning. Just be careful with your summer fun. Yeah. That's why I always carry a knife and pepper spray, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Personal protection. Mm-hmm. So I know we talked about this on the last episode, but we are participating in Fringe this year, Janelle. You want to tell us a little Heck bit about yeah, that? Yeah, we are. It will be in September. Um, information is still being determined yet because pandemic protocols are still kind of in place as we are recording this. So depending on what happens, we will either be in person or, um, on a live show via your computer that you can watch. So keep an eye out for that. More information about tickets and all that good stuff will be happening soon ish. (laughs) Yes. And you, I don't think we talked about this last time, but you as an artist are also in it, right? Yes, I am as a visual artist. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. I yes. love the fringe. I'm so excited for that. I'm going to have some weird stuff in there, so prepare yourself. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. And honestly, if you want to, I'm going to plug you, Janelle, because oh, God. we can, because it's our show. If you want to check out any of Janelle's artwork, you can find her at Janelle Ray Designs, right? On art. Instagram? Janelle Ray Art. Uh, well, okay, so Janelle Ray Art for my website. <laughs> Janelle Ray Design on Instagram or the Artful Janelle for my personal one. I have a oh, lot of stuff go. going on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And Ray is R A E in case you're wondering. Yes. But mm-hmm. you should check it out because I see stuff posted to her, to her Instagram all the time. I saw you were making some new jewelry <laughs> designs that I'm really excited yes. for. I'm going to uh, be in a new store pretty soon. So I made an exclusive line for them. <laughs> wow. Congratulations. I know. Listen to me. <laughs> Look at us go. Being I'm like successful. almost a professional. Yeah. <laughs> almost. Not quite, but almost. Almost there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can find more just like this at badtastecrimepodcast.com, where we have all of our episode links. We've also got links to the merch store if you need stuff, gifts, <laughs> if you want stuff, even if you don't need stuff, but you want stuff, you can get it there. Uh, and our donate page is up there. If you want to support the show Heck financially, yeah. we won't say no. We're not going to fight it. <laughs> <laughs> I won't fight you. <laughs> uh, do you have anything else before we close out the show, Janelle? No, just have a safe summer. Yeah. Have, have fun, but be safe. <laughs> yes. Have your hot girl summer, but be a safe hot girl. Yes. um all right on that though our sound and editing is by tiff fullman our music is by jason zashevsky the enigma this has been the bad taste crime podcast we will see you in two weeks au revoir so long it was as if a wave of evil washed over this town we are all people in some form or another. <laughs>